Radio. Let's talk pets. Rappaport to the rescue with Jill Rappaport. Welcome to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Jill Rappaport on this beautiful fall day. You know, I love October. I love the smell in the air, the leaves starting to turn. But what I really love about this month is that it is Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. <laughs> well, in my life, every month is Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. But what is so crucial, what is so important about this month is the message of please Think about opening up your hearts and homes to these animals in need. And this is the month that reminds us to do that. You know, the statistics are staggering. According to the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, approximately 3.3 million dogs enter the shelter system every year. And that's when these abandoned and often abused animals have found their way to a shelter. And each one, let me remind you, each one needs a forever home. And in the beginning of COVID, which was such a terrifying time and seems to be getting even worse now, the only bright light at the end of the tunnel was that we kept hearing about all of these adoptions, these fosters, these animals were getting a forever home. And it just made me feel so good that there was something positive during this terrible time. But guess what, folks? Now I'm hearing so many stories about these animals being returned for various reasons, whether the owner has to go back to work or financial situation where all of a sudden they were faced with daunting vet bills that they never realized they could get. Whatever the reason, the situation is unacceptable and heartbreaking. Think about that dog that finally got a home and all of a sudden they're put back into the shelter system. They're dumped. They're given up again. Just think about the psychological impact on that animal. So today we're going to talk about the importance of this month, the importance, in my opinion, of every month should be Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. Let's get into that. Let's talk about the joys, the benefits, and also the situation at hand right now. What is the real story about the COVID returns? Is this really happening? And no one better to answer these pertinent questions than my friend, someone I respect so much, the president and CEO of the ASPCA, Matt Bershatker, will be joining us when we come back. This is Pet Life Radio, the possumest pet party place on the planet. Dude, that's a lot of peas, baby. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Get ready for some tail wagging, fur flying, feather flapping fun. Oh, yeah. PetLifeRadio.com. Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com.
Welcome back to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Joel Rappaport. Now, my guest today is a true pivotal force in animal welfare, and he has been for decades. He first joined the ASPCA, which is America's oldest animal welfare organization, almost 20 years ago. Big anniversary coming up. And in 2013, Matt Bershatker was named president and CEO. Together, they have created unbelievable programs, initiatives, and saved countless lives. Matt, so great to have you on Rappaport to the Rescue. And hey, it is Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. This is always my favorite time of year to remind people what we need to do. Absolutely. October is Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. And for us, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate that human-animal bond and to remind people that there are so many lovely dogs waiting for homes and shelters across this country. Big, small, furry, fluffy, three-legged, four-legged. They're there and they're waiting for people to come in. Jill, you and I have talked about this and there may not be any data or science to back this up, but I know in my heart that those dogs that we rescue, they know they've been rescued and they pay that love back in a way that is, is really very, very difficult to measure. So October allows us to celebrate that. But really for the ASPCA, every month is Adopt a Shelter Dog Month. Exactly. And, you know, you talk about knowing they've been saved in the twilight of their lives, especially the special needs, the seniors, the ones that have been sitting there languishing in shelters across the country. When you take home one of those animals, wow, what a gift to you and them. Yes. And, you know, what people often don't think about is when you take a senior, or quite frankly, when you adopt any animal from a shelter, not only are you saving that life, not only are you bring love and joy and companionship into your home, you're freeing up limited shelter resources for another animal that really needs to be there, right? And allows the shelter to help heal and recover that animal. So it's, it's like a two for one when you adopt from a shelter. You know, Matt, right from the beginning when I started this podcast, we talked about COVID and the only bright light was that we were hearing all about these rescues, these fosters, and we were seeing shots, visuals of shelters emptying out. We couldn't believe it. We thought this is a first. And that was the only positive thing to this nightmare virus. But I've been hearing lately that the tide has been turning. So I want to get it from the horse's mouth, the dog's mouth, the cat's mouth, you. What is the story? What's happening with the returns now, the COVID returns? So, you know, we have been watching returns abandonment, obviously a crime, and relinquishments, right? Pretty closely. And while there have been a few upticks in a few places, we have not seen across the country a material increase in abandonment, return, or or, uh, relinquishment, which is wonderful. And I think, Jill, what it speaks to really is the extraordinary power of the human-animal bond and the incredible lengths that people go to to care for their pets. Keep in mind, this is a very anxiety-provoking time that we're living through, right? And what I've seen is people really leaning into these human-animal relationships to help them de-stress, to help them cope with all the uncertainty and all the anxiety. So, Jill, you're right. These are important things for the animal welfare community to watch. Returns, abandonment, and relinquishment. This is the best news because I talked about this on several shows, and especially at the top, the open of this show, I have been hearing from local shelter groups and that people are returning because they didn't realize all of a sudden 
My dog is chiming in. They didn't realize the cost of keeping an animal. They're going back to work, separation anxiety. So I've been hearing about these returns, but I'm so glad on a national scale, you're not hearing that. No, we are really not seeing that yet. And again, it is something that we're watching very, very carefully. You know, what we have seen in COVID is an increase in domestic violence, right? So we were concerned that the parallel would be an increase in animal cruelty. And fortunately, you know, there's still animal cruelty out there and it is horrific, but we haven't seen a material increase in animal cruelty either. So these are things that we are watching, Jill, very, very carefully, but we haven't seen. But it brings me to, I think, a really important point. People need to really think about the type of animal they're looking for and what they're getting into when they bring an animal into their home. And shelters, if you ask the right questions, they will prepare you for the cost of owning an animal, for what it's going to require of you from an administrative level, how many walks do the animal need, all those things, you know, they'll educate you on that. And the ASPCA has resources too that are out there to help people plan for this. And I think, as you know, Jill, the ASPCA opened in the South Bronx last March, and we're opening mid next year in East New York, Brooklyn, two community veterinary centers. These are facilities designed to provide vet care to low-income pet owners. We did a survey and 40 or 50% of pet owners who were relinquishing pets to their shelter cited the lack of access to veterinary services as the primary driver to that relinquishment. What that tells us is these people still love these pets. They wanted to keep their pets, but they couldn't find, they couldn't access quality veterinary care. So we, and along with many others in the animal welfare movement, set out to deliver that care. We have this facility on 161st Street in the Bronx, we have a facility in Liberty City, Miami, we have mobile clinics in Los Angeles, and we're opening uh, probably second quarter 2021, an 11,000-square-foot facility on New Lots Avenue in Brooklyn that'll provide wow. free veterinary care to underserved pet owners. That's what I hear from most pet owners and for people considering adopting, oh boy, what about the cost? And, you know, look, you want to know that if somebody's going to adopt, they can pay for the basic needs and care of the animal. But look, things happen along the way and people come into hard times and you are the last person, the last organization that wants to see these families give up their pets because of this situation. Of course. And, you know, adoption is only one avenue where people get pets. A lot of pets, cat shows up on my doorstep. You know, my neighbor couldn't take care of the dog, so I took him on. So people, sometimes things just happen and we want to make sure people have the resources to maintain that beautiful bond. Here's an alarming stat we are concerned about. So as a result of COVID and the ensuing economic fallout, if unemployment stays at around 10%, that will launch over the next four or five months, about four and a half million pets into poverty. That will bring, Jill, the number of pets living at or below the poverty line, which is $26,000 for a family of four, to nearly 25 million pets living in poverty which is a extraordinary number of animals that are now at risk of being surrendered, being ill or suffering as a result of not being able to access care. So we have really tried to put lots of programs in place that will help meet that need. I think you probably saw when COVID first hit, the ASPCA launched a multi-pronged strategy to meet the needs of pet owners. One prong was grants for shelters and rescues around the country. Our first tranche was $2 million. And we recently, in the last few weeks, issued another tranche, another $2 million of grants for shelters and rescues to help them navigate COVID. The second strategy was to meet the needs of pet owners. So we set up multiple food distribution points across the country, Miami, Los Angeles, Asheville, North Carolina, 
in partnership with Columbus Humane in Columbus, Ohio, and of course, in our hometown, New York City, free pet food distribution points. And we provided over 1,800 tons of free pet food to pet owners in need. We served nearly 270,000 pets with free food. In addition to the free food, at these distribution points, we also set up, and most of them, not in Columbus, but in Asheville, Miami, New York, and Los Angeles, primary pet care units. So we were also providing basic pet care to pet owners who needed it, vaccinations for the tick treatment, and some more advanced care. People love their pets, and they just need a little bit of help sometimes to ensure that they're taking care of them responsibly. Well, obviously, the ASPCA being the oldest animal welfare organization in the country, you've been there. You're about to embark upon your 20th anniversary as part of the organization and seven years as president and CEO. No seven-year itch, though, right, Matt? No. Are you kidding? I have the best job in the country. The best job in the world, right? But how has COVID affected the donations and people giving? Because let's face it, so many are out of work themselves. So you know this as well as anybody. Animal people are fiercely committed to our cause. They are fiercely committed to our issue and to ensuring that all animals get the protection and the resources that they need and quite frankly deserve. And our membership has stood by us throughout this COVID crisis and the ensuing economic fallout. And we have been very, very lucky in that uh, we've been able to raise the needed funds to deliver these programs, to issue $4 million in grants to shelters around the country, to provide 1,800 tons of free pet food. We had some support from the Petco Foundation and PetSmart Charities in doing that. But, you know, fortunately, we've been very, very lucky. Our membership has stood by us throughout this because they, like you and me, Jill, they understand how important these creatures are. And they understand how much value and love they bring into our lives and they want to provide for them. We are very, very lucky. You have been involved in programs. You're responsible for initiatives in animal welfare. Never even thought could be accomplished and achieved. Let's discuss some of those things, what you and the A have done. Thank you, Jill. I'm flattered. You know, I, I, I still pinch myself. I still, rem- I still remember the call from the board when they offered me. This feels funny to even call it a job. It is my passion. So some of the things that I'm most proud of, right? Some of the things I'm most proud of were not always universally immediately accepted. One of the things we did immediately was we transitioned the responsibility for enforcing the animal cruelty laws from our own agents to the New York City Police Department. People felt the New York City Police Department would not respond appropriately, that they didn't have time, that they didn't have the commitment. They were wrong. The New York City Police Department has embraced this role, first under Commissioner Kelly and then under Commissioner Bratton. And to this day, to respond to animal cruelty complaints in a vigorous and robust way. And it went up by 300%. And the sad part of that, of course, is these animals were being abused before. We just didn't have the scope or the bandwidth. You know, the New York City Police Department is 50,000 people, 35,000 officers, all of them now on the lookout for animal cruelty and responding vigorously. And then we supported that through the appropriate behavior and rehabilitation that these animals deserve through the forensic support, veterinary forensic reports. I've had police officers, homicide detectives, comment to me that the vet statements that they get from our forensic veterinarians are better than the statements that they get in homicide cases from the medical examiner's office. Our veterinarians painstakingly go through what this animal has suffered and provide that in a detailed, objective way to ensure that the prosecutions are effective. And to that end, We have several former ADAs who now work for us, and they're exclusively dedicated to working with the New York City ADAs to advance these these prosecutions. So transferring the responsibility of responding to animal cruelty complaints from our own agents, 
which, by the way, is why we were started 154 years ago. The NYPD was a very big movement, something I'm very proud of. And I would say what we need as a country is we need more traditional law enforcement agencies responding to animal cruelty and taking it as seriously as any other crime. We need to follow the same path of drunk driving and domestic violence. It wasn't that long ago that those crimes were not given the appropriate consideration that they now have. So that's one thing. The other thing is behavioral rehabilitation. Dogs were being euthanized in shelters because shelters didn't have the skill or the resources to recover animals from the trauma and the abuse that they suffered. Dogs particularly, and cats too, come into shelters and they're exhibiting certain behaviors that make them quote unquote unadoptable. These behaviors are the result of abuse and trauma. If we put in place specific behavior modification and enrichment techniques, we can recover these animals and they can go on to be wonderful pets and loving pets and thrive in homes. So we began with the pilot program and basically all the dogs that we worked with, this was in partnership with St. Hubert's in New Jersey, were euthanasia candidates because they were deemed unadoptable because of their behavior. We said, let's see if we can save 50% of these dogs through a specific program dedicated to helping them recover and heal. We ran that program for three or four years and we saved 86% of the animals. Unbelievable. Then with that data, the board approved $10 million facility in Asheville, North Carolina, actually in Weaverville, North Carolina, where we built the first and we hope not the only, and we've shared our plans and our floor plans and our SOPs with any animal welfare organization who wants them, Behavioral Rehabilitation Center. And there we improved our performance to over 90% of the dogs. And all of these dogs, keep in mind, Jill, are coming from deprived environments, abusive environments, neglectful environments, and are exhibiting behaviors that make them, for the moment, unadoptable. The average length of stay is only about eight weeks, right? Eight to 12 weeks, two, three months of dedicated, specific behavior modification and enrichment, and they graduate and they go on. Ah, so really looking at behavior, both canine behavior and feline behavior, and putting in place science-backed programs that can recover them, and then sharing those protocols. Down in Asheville, in Weaverville, we have a learning lab where shelters from around the country come. We have a dormitory on the campus where they can come and stay for free and take back to their shelters the protocols and the SOPs that we've developed so they can implement them in their own shelters because shelters around the country are seeing animals, dogs that have been victims of abuse and they want to help them heal. And it's why we love animals so much is their incredible capacity to forgive and their incredible capacity to heal. Some of the things that these animals have suffered, if they happen to me or to you, we'd never get over it with therapy and everything else. But these dogs, they just want to be dogs, right? They just want to love and they just want to play. That's what dogs are best at, right? Being our loyal companions, filling us with so much joy. And we are now actually going to launch again next year, a feline rehabilitation, a small feline rehabilitation program. That's wonderful. Because is it true, Matt, the stats that there's four cats to every one dog in a shelter? There's more cats in shelters. I don't know if it's four to one, but forget the cats in shelters. The bigger problem, Jill, is all the community cats out there, right? You know, you hear numbers, and I don't think anyone really knows. You hear numbers, 30, 40, 50, 60 million cats living in our community. So one of the strategies we want to advance, and this is a few years from now, once we open this facility in Brooklyn, the community vet center in East New York, we want to see if we can lock the block in East New York and essentially care for, rehome all of the community cats in a specific radius. Because then logic would dictate if we can handle it in a 10 block radius, we can handle it in a 20 block radius, 
We can handle it in a 20 block radius. We can handle it in a three mile radius, right? We can get the protocols and the strategies down and then prove that we can handle this population and make, make sure they're all appropriately home. Then we can share that out. The other big focus area that I'm very, very proud of, and we touched on this earlier, Joe, is the intersection of pets and poverty, right? We talked about almost 25 million pets living in poverty. There's no reason to believe that people who are living in poverty don't love their pets as much as you and I do. And there's no reason to, to believe that they shouldn't have access to the love and companionship that pets bring. In fact, if you have less in your life, how much more might your dog or cat actually mean to you? How much more fulfillment would you derive from that relationship? And this woman, her name is Lori Hensley. She runs a group called Unchained Dogs down in, in Durham, North Carolina. She was talking about, Durham is a city of half and half not. She was talking about doing some work out in the community and a woman, I still get emotional thinking about this. A woman, very impoverished home. A woman had a dog that was living outside, pretty much under a camper. And years ago, the animal welfare community would have taken that dog from that woman and rehomed them somewhere else. We don't do that anymore. Now what we try to do is provide resources so that dog's quality of life can be improved. So that's what we did. That's what Lori did. Fenced the yard, cleaned the yard, right? Made sure there was food and medical care and got the dog healthy. Fast forward a few years, the dog got very sick and had to be euthanized. Lori went with the woman to be euthanized. And the woman was holding, it was a little dog, Chihuahua, Dachshund kind of mix, was holding the dog on her lap and speaking to the dog in Spanish. And Lori said to her, what were you saying? And this is all through tears. And she was saying that I was thanking her because after my child, I was in such severe postpartum depression that my only release for months was when you were sitting on my lap and I was stroking. So you think about what would have happened if we would have taken that dog from that woman, what kind of spiral that could have sparked. But instead, this dog with the healing power of the human-animal bond Help this woman navigate very, very real depression. I think actually that is the future. Behavior and intersection of pets and poverty, access to care is the future. Because Jill, you mentioned my 20 years. When I started, you know, there were millions of dogs and cats dying in shelters. We're down to less than a million now, right? We will solve this. We will get to the point where no adoptable, treatable, healthy animals are dying in shelters. That's in our sights, which is incredibly exciting. And that allows us, that success has allowed us to back up, look beyond the four walls of the shelter and understand how animals are getting there. And in the future, it's only really a few populations of animals should be in shelters, right? Those that are temporarily lost and need to be reunited with their owners. Those that are victims of cruelty and need to be taken from their owners, recovered, healed, and rehomed. And those that are in kind of a temporary crisis, COVID. During COVID, we housed about 70 animals for people who were in the hospital and were ill. Part of the reason why we pushed adoption so much was so we could empty our shelter and it could be an emergency boarding facility so people wouldn't have to give up their animals if they got ill and had to go into the hospital. So uh, you did find that many animals were being brought to you because their owners were in the hospital? About COVID? 70, yeah. Wow. And, and, and sadly, there were quite a few owners who, who died as a result of COVID. Uh-huh. And uh, we were able to fortunately to rehome all of those animals. This is the worst pandemic in 100 years. It hit New York, as we all know extremely hard in the beginning. And there were people who, who, who needed us. You know, the thing about nonprofits, all nonprofits, people need our services when times are good, right? What COVID did was it just really shined a light on, on poverty and the crisis and the fact that people need help. And you know, Matt, having known you all these years, your mission of the heart has really been for the underdogs 
the undercats, meaning yep. the pit bulls, special yep. needs seniors. You have really made it your life's mission to create programs to help the underdogs, haven't yes. you? The ASPCAs were so fortunate to be so well-resourced, but we really need to focus those resources on saving lives, animals that truly need us. And you know what? This is where we collaborate with other animal welfare organizations that maybe don't have the financial resources that we have. Let them take care of the puppies from the South that just need to be transported. And by the way, we transport about forty to 45,000 animals, primarily from South to North, every year. But let those go to the less well-resourced shelters because we know those puppies are going to fly out the door. It's the pities. It's the seniors. It's the ones with medical conditions. It's the ones who are maybe a little bit shy and maybe you need to move a little bit slower around them. Those are the ones that we really want to lean into because we know we're saving their life. And without us, they're at risk. And those are the animals that I'm committed to. You know, Jill, I've had, depends on your perspective, either the good fortune or the horror of having been on several dog fighting yards in my time at the ASPCA. And for me, of all the things we see, it is dog fighting that is the the most horrific abuse. Because you combine the physical abuse with this incredible psychological torture, and the fighters are using these wonderful characteristics in dogs for their own sadistic or financial gain. It's the manipulation, it's the perversion of that wonderful characteristic, that loyalty that I can't abide. And it is hard to breed con-species aggression. Dogs are pack animals. They are not supposed to be aggressive with one another, at least not the way a true game dog can be. So many dogs on fighting yards can go on to be wonderful, wonderful pets. And they can be wonderful with people and children. For me, trying to eradicate dog fighting is a very, very important goal. It's obviously very, very difficult because these are criminals doing a criminal act. And we are succeeding. When you think about the place that animals hold in our society today, it is getting closer to the place it should be, right? People are beginning to respect and revere animals the way they should. You know, Matt, it's just amazing to hear how far the A has come and the programs that you've started to really make a difference for animals that really would never have had any shot. And I know this week was a very special week for the ASPCA. Thank you, Jill. I, I appreciate that. I'm extremely proud of the staff and of the board and of our donors who stepped forward in this uncertain time to celebrate the ASPCA and the work that we did in response to COVID. You know, the Humane Awards Luncheon, it's my favorite event because what it traditionally does is it recognizes animals and what they bring to us and ordinary people who do extraordinary things on their behalf. And this year, because of COVID, because of uh, the pandemic, we took a little bit of a different approach and we wanted to talk a little bit about the work that we've done. You and I talked about most of that here today in response to that. And, you know, I have been fortunate enough to lead this organization, but, you know, we're over a thousand people and everywhere I go at the ASPCA, there are talented, smart, deeply, deeply committed people working to change the world for animals. And the Humane Awards Luncheon allows us to celebrate all of that, which is why it's so inspiring. And I just think it's so great that you are tackling and creating programs to really save the most in need. It was all really wonderful information. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. I enjoyed it very much. And, uh, I love to talk about the work. And I love to talk about it with you because your commitment is so, so deep. So thank you. Thank you so much. And please stay safe and continue your great work. And coming up, Bill Berloni. It's a rescue road trip. Stay tuned.
Oh, sure. It's all fun and games until someone ends up in a cone. That's right. We are animals. Deal with it. Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Rappaport to the Rescue. I'm Jill Rappaport, and today we have a very special treat. You know, each week I'm joined with my pal, Bill Berloni, and this week Bill is literally on a rescue road trip. Hey, Bill, where are you? And tell us how this whole trip began. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm somewhere in Pennsylvania heading back to Connecticut with this wonderful dog I've just adopted, but... The trip started when we found a really good Sandy dog, the dog from Annie, in a shelter in Boise, Idaho. And I had to get out there very quickly. So we found him on a Thursday. I was on a plane on Saturday, and the trip was worth it. This is Okay, a- but wait. Let's not give this all away. You said you found him on a Saturday. Uh-huh. You were on a plane. Yep. But what people don't understand, you went to get this dog. You yep. flew, which in itself is a risk with COVID. Was that frightening for you? I was concerned. But the airlines and everybody was great. It wasn't that crowded. Okay. So then you flew to Idaho. Yep. And you're meeting this dog for the first time, which you hope in your heart is going to be the next Sandy in Annie on Broadway. You don't know. You've never seen this dog. What happened when you saw the dog? Well, they had told me a lot about him. They sent me some videotape. And when I saw him, immediately he had that look. The look I've been looking for for many, many years. And uh, I started my temperament test and he passed three out of the four with flying colors. So the feeling that I had that this dog needed to be rescued by me, I followed it. And I think he's got the right home and I think we have a great dog. And he's going to be a superstar. You feel it in your gut. I do. I do. I mean, this is scary times, not only just financially, but traveling, you know, is scary. But seeing the pictures of him in the shelter and feeling the connection, I just had to do it. How old of a dog is he? He's a year old. And what people don't understand, you're not getting on a plane with this dog. You actually rented a car, and you are driving back from Idaho to your home in New York, which is what, a five, six-day trip, and you're about six hours away still? Yep, it's a six-day trip. I have one more day left. But, you know, it's a really good bonding time. I've spent 24-7 with this dog, both in a car and in hotel rooms. And we know <laughs> each other. And we've never flown our dog's cargo. We never do. And we recommend people don't do it either. So if you're going to get a dog, you've got to travel him by car. I've done that trip. You know, I've traveled with my dogs all over the country. I've gone from one end to the other because I'm not a big fan of flying. But it's amazing that you found this dog. You hopped on a plane during this very frightening time, and you've driven all the way back. What have you learned about this amazing dog along the way? I've named him Corey, and he was a stray. And, you know, I always question, why did people let them go and not try and find them? Because he's a sweet lab-type dog who is completely housebroken, doesn't chew, quiet. I mean, he plays a little hard, but that's easy to fix. And uh, I've learned that he has the heart of a star. Wow. And when you get back, when do you anticipate he will get to the great white way? (laughs) Well, it actually takes me a year from the time I get a dog to the time I get it on stage. So I'm actually doing this now, hoping that when the world goes back to normal, 
and the next production of Annie in 2021 happens, he'll be ready. This is so exciting, Bill. What an amazing experience. You know, when I usually catch up with you, you're either at your home, which is where we all are, or you're at the Humane Society in New York City doing your training and helping find these dogs a home. But now to catch up with you on the road, doing your cross-country rescue trip for the next Annie star. This is such great news, Bill. Congratulations to you and what a lucky boy Corey is. And time to end another great show. And what do we always say at the end? Always stay positive. (laughs) Till next week, thanks for tuning in. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.